Welcome back to another month's episode of Energy Voices on CJSR. My name is Sean Collins and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. This month on Energy Voices, we're going to dive into a complex subject that is uh, something that I've been challenged with over the past few years uh, as I've gotten more and more involved in climate-related activities. And that's something that I see as what can often be a fundamental tension between the climate activist campaign and the environmental campaign. And, and so often we think of those as being inherently aligned initiatives where things that are good for the climate are things that are the good for the environment and vice versa. But there have been a few fundamental differences that I've observed between the climate and the environmental movement that I thought would be interesting to explore on this show today. The, this sort of initial inspiration to really dive into the differences between the climate and the environmental movement uh, really sparked for me when I was fortunate enough to attend COP21 in Paris uh, in 2015. And as part of those festivities, I was able to chat with a number of individuals and organizations and nonprofits and industry groups. And one of the interactions that stuck with me was a conversation I had with a French NGO that was an environmentally focused uh, youth NGO. And uh, part of my sort of conversation and questions was around what were some of the major initiatives that they were working towards. And uh, the the woman that I was speaking with brought up the fact that one of their primary campaigns was around uh, stopping nuclear power development in, um, in France. And this struck me as being something that was very uh, dif- different than most of the conversations I'd heard, primarily because of the fact that COP21 was almost exclusively climate change related and focused on, on really focused on this idea of meeting a two-degree global target. And the, the, the sort of response that I had was, well, France has amongst the lowest greenhouse gas emissions on their electricity grid of any industrialized nation. Uh, I, I don't have the exact number, but I believe cl- over 80% of uh, France's power comes from nuclear power, and which has enabled them to be a very pronounced climate leader. And one of the reasons they were so interested in being um, in the leadership role for COP21 and chairing that program. And it, it, was, it was sort of articulated to me by a colleague that uh, one of the main reasons is that environmentalists are fundamentally opposed to nuclear power because of the issues around nuclear waste. And, and this is something we'll dive into on the show. But it really brought up this moment for me where an industry in a world that I thought was very aligned around the, the ways in which we get to a two-degree global target or and we mitigate runaway man, man-made climate change is not actually such a, a clear-cut world. And so on today's show, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into uh, the nuclear energy issue as well as the issue around pipelines because they're two specific subjects that I think really delineate some of the the, the alignment between the climate movement and the environmental movement. So we're going to walk through some of the pros and cons uh, and look at the lens of the environmental lens into pipelines and the environmental lens into uh, nuclear energy. And then we're going to look at the climate lens into pipelines and the climate lens into uh, nuclear energy. And so that's sort of the flavor of the show this month that will be a little bit different than some of the traditional Energy Voices shows that we've aired. So we're going to start off by looking at the pipeline issue, and the way I want to approach this is by looking first and foremost at what some of the fundamental environmental concerns around the Dakota Access Pipeline are. Uh, There's very very significant environment issues around uh, water and land usage, and so we're going to borrow from a clip that uh, kicks off by exploring some of the fundamental issues and concerns around the water issues related to the Dakota Access Pipeline. 
After months of protests from Native Americans and environmental activists, construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline will stop. It's a tremendous victory for Standing Rock, for the Acheti Shakoni, for the countless tribal nations, indigenous communities, and millions of Americans and people across the world who hit the streets in support of Standing Rock. The company building the pipeline was waiting for a permit on the very last section, which would have crossed the Missouri River just north of the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. Instead of granting the permit, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers says it will find an alternate route for the pipeline. For months, Native Americans and environmental activists have protested, arguing the pipeline poses an environmental hazard. The Missouri River is the only water supply for the Standing Rock Sioux tribe. That gets contaminated. They don't have a water supply. The company building the pipeline said it would be safer than sending oil via trucks or trains. That This pipeline is being built to safety standards that far exceed what, what the government requires us to do. With the increase in U.S. oil production, oil pipeline leaks are up 60 percent since 2009. Sunoco Logistics spills more crude than any of its competitors. 200 oil leaks in the last six years. Doesn't that safety record indicate that the concerns of the Standing Rock tribe ought to be listened to? The tribe also claimed construction had already disrupted some of their sacred sites and burial grounds. We have a sworn declaration from one of the tribe's cultural experts that describes some of these sites, multiple grave uh, sites and burials. We put all that in front of the court, and the next morning it was gone. They took that information and bulldozed the entire site. The law tries to keep this exact thing from happening through a process called consultation. Anytime there's a project on federal lands, American Indian government has the right to consult with the United States agencies before those projects go forward. The tribe says this consultation didn't happen the way it was supposed to. And for months, they've been occupying land that's owned by the pipeline company, but which the tribe says belongs to them. And county law enforcement officials have been aggressively trying to get them to leave. The CEO of the company building the pipeline had hoped that President-elect Donald Trump could push the project through. And though Trump says he supports the pipeline, he'd have to go through the courts to reverse this decision from the Army Corps, which means, for now, the tribe's water source is safe. So next up in looking at the issue of pipelines, we're also going to stick with the environmental viewpoint, uh, as well as a bit of a more of a sociocultural viewpoint that looks at, again, at the Dakota Access Pipeline from the perspective of uh, landowner, government relations, treaties, uh, as well as some components of the water issue as well, to really frame some of the major reasons for opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, as it pertains to the environmental lens and to the Indigenous lens. After months of protest, it happened. The permit that was needed to construct the Dakota Access Pipeline near the Standing Rock Reservation was denied. But for Native Americans, the fight is never really over. For them, these type of agreements have a history of being broken. And our people, our history is here of fighting the U.S. government. North Dakota, South Dakota, the High Plains area, there's the, the non-Indian mentality is still frontier mentality. I met Madonna Thunderhawk here at the Osheti Sakui camp. She's part of the American Indian movement and lives in the Cheyenne River Reservation that borders Standing Rock. When I grew up, there were enormous cottonwood trees along the riverbanks, you know, and there was 
it was it was an amazing uh, you know ecosystem, natural, and not anymore. As a teenager in the 1950s, Madonna witnessed the construction and the aftermath of the Lake Oahe Dam. On a whirlwind tour through the West, President Kennedy stops first at Pear, South Dakota. The government project was created to provide electricity for much of the north central United States. President John F. Kennedy celebrated the completion of the dam in 1962. The facts of the matter are that this dam, and many more like it, are as essential to the expansion and growth of the American economy as any measure that the Congress is now considering. The fact of the matter was that the Oahe Dam flooded the Standing Rock and Cheyenne River reservations, displacing hundreds of indigenous families and destroying more than 160,000 acres of their most sacred and fertile land. By the end, it would destroy more Indian land than any other public works project in the United States. Uh, but when the dams were built, they took out the wetlands, they took out the, the food source. So that's when the government handout programs begin full force. This is just a part of the 165-year-long pattern of the federal government grabbing land from the Lakota and Dakota people. The 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty reserved millions of acres of land for the Great Sioux Nation. The treaty was broken immediately. White settlers began encroaching, and they only continued with the discovery of gold in the Black Hills. Then Congress took even more land a decade later. Each land seizure disrupted Native communities' way of life. We're again on the front lines. We as a people have been sacrificing in the national interest since they got here, and it's still going on. Walking around the Ocheti Sakobi camp, I talked to a lot of people who said that when it comes to the federal government, the tribes here have lost more than they've gained. Uh, and we don't reap the benefits. The rest of the nation reaps the benefits. This is Chairman Dave Archambault. He's been fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2015, before protests made national headlines. Concerned with the potential impact on their water supply and sacred sites, the reservation worked to block the plan through the courts. So when I ask, why do you need this pipeline, they'll say, uh, we need it for energy independence, we need it for national security, and we need it for economic development. While our people um, have been paying, the Great Sioux Nation has been paying for that for centuries. And the, it costs us, and it continues to cost us. For many who live on the reservation, these are costs they're not willing to pay anymore. Would you be there if you could be there now? Yeah? Why would you want to be there right now, in this cold? Zuya is one of Wastewi Young's four kids. They live in the town of Fort Yates, the tribal headquarters of the Standing Rock Sioux. Young was at the camp the night that law enforcement fired water cannons on demonstrators in freezing temperatures. People were drippy wet, and by the time they got them back to the camp, to the medics, their clothes were rock solid. When we interviewed her, two weeks later, she was still recovering from pneumonia. It's all related. It's all a part of the systematic oppression and suppression of our voice, of our right to be, of our right to live. Year after year after year, our administration after administration. The trickle-down effect of the U.S. government disregarding treaties has had a lasting effect on Native communities. No monthly free checks, despite what everybody says. We do have Indian Health Service, and a lot of it is substandard care. And there are housing shortages. 
where two, three families all live in one home. The poverty rate in Sandy Rock is nearly triple that of the national average, and unemployment is at 79% versus 4.6% for the rest of the country. If all the treaties had been honored, where would the tribe be today? If we had that autonomy and that freedom to be freely within these treaty boundaries, I think that we would be happy you could be true sovereign. The people at Standing Rock refer to the pipeline as the Black Snake. For them, the battle with the Black Snake is yet another fight in a long timeline of clashes with the U.S. government. There's no light at the end of the tunnel for us. As long as we're land-based, we're going to constantly be under fire from corporate America. It's in our DNA. I always call it the resiliency gene. And no president is ever going to punk us out. So as you can see, there is a tremendous amount of valid criticism uh, and constructive reasons why the Dakota Access Pipeline and pipeline projects pose significant issues for Indigenous populations, environmental populations, and, and other populations that are opposed to those sorts of developments. But uh, I want to switch gears now and take a bit of a look at this issue from a purely climate lens. Um, as far as looking at the overall energy system and how we look at uh, oil transportation. So one of the things that we sort of fundamentally try to work on at Student Energy is to take a larger look at the energy system. And oil transportation is one of the, the most contentious and most interesting aspects of the larger energy system because it nothing operates in isolation. And the way we're going to look at this now is looking at the impact that pipeline constraints have had on oil oil by rail transport. And one of the most uh, staggering sort of outcomes of this growth in oil by rail is the uh, explosion that happened in Lac Megantic in Quebec as a result of increased crude uh, by rail traffic. And there's a specific statistic partway through this next segment that really struck me in the growth of uh, oil by rail from 8,000 cubic tons to 4.3 million cubic tons in a three-year span, which is just an absolutely staggering growth in the amount of traffic uh, that we're seeing from an oil by rail perspective. And it's something that's not nearly as frequently discussed as we discuss the issue of pipelines. Uh, and it's important for people to understand that this is a system and oil is still moving regardless of if pipelines are being built or not. And there's some very real outcomes uh, and negative outcomes that result from a significant increase in oil by rail. So here's a short clip that walks through some of those issues and challenges specifically relating to the Lac Megantic challenge. Derailments of this magnitude are rare, but it is not the first time a train carrying crude oil has left the tracks. There's been a huge increase in the amount of oil being transported by rail. And environmentalists say accidents such as this are bound to happen. Alison Vushnik reports. As the residents of this small community try to come to terms with this tragedy. Another concern, the crude oil leaking. How much spilled and what will the impact be as it seeps into the water? The amount of crude oil shipped by rail in Canada has increased dramatically in the last few years. In just three years, it went from 8,000 metric tons to 4.3 million, according to Transport Canada. This is a tragedy, but it's also a scandal. 
Environmental groups have been warning, with more oil being transported by train, that more disasters have and will happen. The federal government knew that these cars were unsafe. The Federal Transportation Safety Board uh, said nine years ago that these kind of tankers, DOT 111, are unsafe to carry crude oil. There have been other derailments and spills in Lake Wabaman in Alberta in 2005 and most recently in Jansen, Saskatchewan in May. Proponents of rail transport say it's safe that 99.9% of dangerous train transports make it safely. In Quebec, investigators start their job, examining what impacts speed, track conditions and crew error had on the crash. A report issued by the Transportation Safety Board into the 2012 VIA crash in Burlington, Ontario, that killed three crew members and injured 45 passengers, recommended new fail-safe controls that would slow down the train if the crew made an error. Fundamental change to the rail system so that we'll have automatic fail-safe controls that will slow down or stop a train if needed. It's unclear if those new measures could have helped prevent this disaster, but for environmentalists, the risk is clear. These trains are dangerous. A deadly derailment with potential long-term impacts. Alison Vushnik, Global News. So as you can see, there are some very real concerns around the significant increase in oil by rail. But I want to dive deeper into the oil by rail issue with a specific climate lens. And I'm going to reference a research paper that was written by Amit Kumar, who is a professor at the University of Alberta, who did a GHG, a greenhouse gas emission analysis of oil by rail uh, versus pipelines to really try to drive at what the carbon intensity of each of those means of transporting oil is. And if you think about it, the, logically you would assume, which is correct, that oil by rail has significantly larger carbon emissions than pipeline because uh, you, you often have most of your rail infrastructure is that the fuel to transport a train is is often coal or is is, is significantly dirtier fuel um, versus the efficiency of a pipeline system uh, and and in propelling oil or any sort of liquid through a pipeline is just a much more efficient system than you're going to find by uh, transporting all that oil to a rail site, uh, having that train drive to whatever refining or storage capacity it's getting to, then offloading it and then delivering it to its end destination. Uh, and, and the thing that was really interesting is, is Dr. Kumar's research identified that uh, oil by rail uh, has, uh, sorry, uh, pipelines have between a 61 or 77 percent uh, of the emissions intensity of oil by rail. And so if you're talking about a 30 to 40 percent reduction in the emissions intensity of getting that oil to market via pipelines, if you're looking at the issue of oil transport purely from a climate lens as far as what is going to release the least amount of emissions into the atmosphere, it's very obvious that pipelines are the most carbon efficient means of transporting that, but that doesn't account for any of the very significant environmental land and water issues that were identified previously in that uh, segment. And so I bring that up as one of those issues that how do you approach that and how do you approach the pipeline dis discussion because there's so many fundamental issues and concerns from an environment, a socio sociological, a cultural and an indigenous perspective. But if we're looking at these issues as far as how we tackle climate change, pipelines are a much more efficient means of, of transporting our uh, hydrocarbon assets um, to market than the other alternatives that have skyrocketed since pipeline infrastructure has been constrained. 
So for our next um, segment, we're going to flip back into the topic that really kicked this off for me, which is an analysis of nuclear energy and the environmental uh, versus climate lenses at which we can look at nuclear energy. And so uh, I want to, again, kick things off and looking at this from some of the deep concerns and issues and challenges that we've had with uh, nuclear energy. And there's a segment from Kurzagast that they did on some of the top three concerns with nuclear energy. And so we'll use that to really kick this off and frame what some of the fundamental issues and challenges uh, of developing and continuing to develop a nuclear energy industry globally are. Three reasons why we should stop using nuclear energy. One, nuclear weapons proliferation. Nuclear technology made a violent entrance onto the world stage. Just one year after the world's first ever nuclear test explosion in 1944, two large cities were destroyed by just two single bombs. After that, reactor technology slowly evolved as a means of generating electricity, but it's always been intimately connected with nuclear weapons technology. It's nearly impossible to develop nuclear weapons without access to reactor technology. In fact, the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty serves the purpose of spreading nuclear reactor technology without spreading nuclear weapons with limited success. In 40 years, five countries have developed their own weapons with the help of reactor technology. The fact of the matter is that it can be very hard to distinguish a covert nuclear weapons program from the peaceful use of nuclear energy. In the 1970s, the big nuclear powers were happily selling peaceful technology to smaller countries, which then developed weapons of their own. The road to deadly nuclear weapons is always paved with peaceful reactors. 2. Nuclear Waste and Pollution Spent nuclear fuel is not only radioactive, but also contains extremely poisonous chemical elements like plutonium. It loses its harmfulness only slowly over several tens of thousands of years. And there is also a process called reprocessing, which means the extraction of plutonium from spent nuclear fuel. It can be used for two purposes, to build nuclear weapons or to use it as new fuel. But hardly any of it is used as fuel because we don't have the right kind of reactors for that. A milligram will kill you, a few kilograms make an atomic bomb, and even an inconspicuous country like Germany literally has tons of the stuff just lying around because reprocessing sounded like a good idea decades ago. And where will all the waste go? After dumping it into the ocean was forbidden, we've tried to bury it, but we can't find a place where it will definitely stay secure for tens of thousands of years. Over 30 countries operate nearly 400 reactors, managing several hundred thousands of tons of nuclear waste, and only one is currently serious about opening a permanent civilian waste storage, tiny Finland. 3. Accidents and Disasters over 60 years of nuclear power usage, there have been seven major accidents in reactors or facilities dealing with nuclear waste. Three of those were mostly contained, but four of them released significant amounts of radioactivity into the environment. In 1957, 1987 and 2011, large areas of land in Russia, Ukraine and Japan were rendered unfit for human habitation for decades to come. The number of deaths is highly disputed, but probably lies in the thousands. These disasters happened with nuclear reactors of very different types in very different countries and several decades apart. Looking at the numbers, we may as well ask ourselves, are 10% of the world's energy supply worth a devastating disaster every 30 years? Would 30% be worth another Fukushima or Chernobyl somewhere on Earth every 10 years? What area would have to be contaminated so we say no more? Where is the line? So. 
Should we use nuclear energy? The risks may outweigh the benefits, and maybe we should stop looking into this direction and drop this technology for good. So one of the more morbid but real aspects of that clip that stuck with me is the the comment around the number of deaths that have resulted from uh, nuclear power uh, accidents and issues, and and he bring and they bring up the statistic. There's potentially hundreds or thousands of people that have been killed in uh, in total across all nuclear power incidents in the world, and I think this is a really important aspect of context setting in this case because if you uh, when I heard that I I started researching into well what are other um, what are the mortality and fatality statistics from other industries? And if you just Google um, U.S. coal fatalities, Department of Labor, uh, they published the statistics on the number of just coal miner deaths, so not any of the related um, air pollution or health consequences of the actual burning of coal and coal power generation. But if you look at just coal fatalities from miners, uh, the thing that's staggering to me is all through the early 1900s, you didn't have a single year with less than 1,000 coal miner deaths. The first year uh, with less than 1,000 coal miner deaths just in the United States was in 1946. And even to this date, uh, you have yet to have a year on record uh, since we started mining coal in the United States with less than 10. And, uh, coal miner deaths, most years, uh, especially right up through to the 1980s, you had literally hundreds of deaths of coal miners every single year. Uh, and it's interesting to me that we we think about issues like Fukushima and we think about issues uh, like Chernobyl as being these fundamentally catastrophic mass, mass losses of life and land. Uh, when you look at the continuous repeated loss of life that have come from the coal industry as a topic that is almost never discussed. And so I, I want to use that as, again, a way to frame the context of that there is consistently a trade-off in what we're choosing to do um, from an environmental perspective and, and, again, from a human health perspective. Uh, but I want to frame um, the real climate and health impact, uh, not necessarily of nuclear power, but in looking at uh, coal generation um, as something that is is a, a major issue. And, and the way we're going to do that is through a WHO report, a World Health Organization report that was released a few years ago that documented that uh, their estimate is between five and six million deaths each year are, are attributed to air pollution, with about half of that coming from indoor air pollution and about half of that coming from outdoor air pollution. And, and this is something that was staggering to me, that again, we, we list one of the major issues and concerns with developing nuclear energy, that a nuclear meltdown or nuclear waste could result in potentially thousands of deaths, when we currently live in a world where north of 3 million people a year die due to air pollution, of which a primary contributor to that is fine particulate matter that results from coal power generation. And so, again, I think it's important for us to set some context as far as what the actual fundamental issues and concerns are, because while it is morbid to have the discussion around are a thousand deaths or, or several hundred deaths from nuclear incidents um, around the world worth the fact that we're currently having north of three million people a year die as a result of air pollution, largely caused by our fossil fuel power generation infrastructure. And so it is one of those subjects that's very, very sticky and very complex and very uh, challenging to address, but it's important to, to really dive into what some of those numbers mean.
In order to explore this issue of the human health impacts of air pollution and fine particulate matter, I'm now going to borrow uh, a short two-minute clip uh, that is an interview with the World Health Organization as they articulate the challenges and the very real human health issues that arise and the death toll that they can attribute to uh, air pollution, both indoor and outdoor air pollution globally. And I'm on poor back with the global perspective where America meets the world. And this week we're talking about something that affects practically everyone on this planet, air pollution, both indoors and outdoors. And it kills, prematurely kills, more than six million people a year. That is huge. Unfortunately, we only ever pay attention to it in the most extreme cases, such as what we've been seeing in Beijing, China over the last several weeks. This dark, gloomy, soupy air that people have literally had to wear face masks to try to protect themselves. And ABC's Gloria Riviera has our report now from Beijing. Here in China, in Beijing, they are breathing deeply for the first time under blue skies after more than three weeks of pollution that averaged about 300 on the air quality index. That's about 280 points over what the World Health Organization says is good clean air. China's air pollution problem is due to the same kinds of things that produce bad air around the world. It's factories going full tilt 24-7 to maintain the explosive economic growth this country has experienced for over a decade. Also with a growing middle class, there are millions of first-time car owners on the road. Both of those things are happening without the proper environmental standards in place. There is cautious optimism here in China. For the first time in Beijing, officials issued an emergency warning telling people to stay inside and ordering about a third of all government vehicles off the roads. Joining me now to discuss this terrible situation in Beijing and air pollution around the world is Dr. Maria Neira. She's the director of the Department of Public Health and the Environment at the World Health Organization, and she's joining me from their headquarters in Geneva. Dr. Neira, thank you for joining me. So apart from what we've seen in places like China and India, what are the other places that are of most concern regarding air quality? We don't have a ranking of cities. Why? First, because many of the cities around the world, in particular, or, or even those who are expected to have very high levels of, of uh, pollution, they don't have a regular or routine system to monitor air quality. Therefore, our first recommendation will be for all big cities around the world to initiate this monitoring of air quality and then being able to measure that and to match those uh, indicators with the health of the people and the health gains that you can obtain or the health damage that you can cause if you have uh, high levels of air pollution. Around the world, how would you describe the air quality right now? Is it generally good or is it generally bad? For emerging economies, I think it's still a big challenge and there are still many interventions that can be put in place to reduce that high levels of air pollution. And in developing countries is a major problem, particularly because the pollution is caused by indoor air pollution, by household air pollution, by the fact that the people in developing countries, they are still using uh, solid fuels for heating and cooking, and this is contributing to, to air pollution. In general, we can say that uh, according to the latest report published, that we uh, calculate that 3.3 million premature deaths every year are caused by outdoor air pollution and 3.5 
million deaths, uh, premature deaths, uh, can be associated to uh, household air pollution. And finally, is the whole issue of the environment, climate change, does that also impact this idea of, of outdoor air pollution? Absolutely, and, and, and we know now that these uh, short-life uh, pollutants like uh, the black carbon, which is one of the, the, the pollutants that is contributing to the heating, is, is, uh, is a major uh, uh, particulate matter, 2.5, so affecting and contributing to outdoor air pollution. So the good news is that if you mitigate climate change, if you take interventions to reduce uh, climate change, you will have a benefit on reducing air pollution and vice versa. If you reduce air pollution, you will be contributing to fight uh, the causes of climate change. And in any case, you will be generating a lot of health benefits. And so um, I'm, I'm going to take a step back uh, and also uh, now look at uh, again, some of the criticisms and concerns for nuclear power uh, as it develops. And and this uh, next segment that I'm going to air is a longer form segment. It's about 15 minutes long. And it's from Jack Gibbons, who leads the Ontario Clean Air Alliance. And uh, they're very anti-nuclear, which I originally found ironic uh, for an organization called the Clean Air Alliance because of the fact that the the air impacts of nuclear power are that you're generating steam and potentially clouds um, as a byproduct of the cooling stations, but there is zero air impact uh, from nuclear power generation and that the Clean Air Alliance of Ontario is, is very fundamentally against nuclear power. Um, but however, so I think it is important to address and, and sort of showcase what some of the issues and concerns of the Clean Air Alliance are. Um, it is also interesting to me as part of this clip that Jack Gibbons specifically addresses uh, the emissions versus uh, environmental concern um, and then does go on to articulate some of the, the very real concerns around the cost profile and the longevity of some of the facilities. Um, but again, this sort of tension between the renewable energy industry and the nuclear industry is something that I don't think gets very much play in and isn't something that I feel like is discussed enough. And so I, I leave you to, to take a look at this um, clip from Jack Gibbons and the Ontario Clean Air Alliance and some of their criticisms of the focus on nuclear power supporting and, and refurbishing the nuclear power industry uh, versus a pure play into full-scale renewable uh, transformation of their electricity system. Um, and now it's, it's 2012 and we've just about got the coal phase out. Coal-fired production last year was at its lowest level in this great province in 50 years. Only 2.7% of our electricity came from coal. We've now got legally binding regulations that require all the coal plants to shut down in two years from now. So we're making great progress. And so now we're, we're focused on our long-term goal, 100% uh, renewable electricity grid by 2030. And by 100% renewable grid, we mean that all the electricity that comes to your home or your office or your factory from an electricity um, wire, all of that comes from renewable sources. Now that's just 12 years from now. And again, the smart people, the sophisticated people may say, well, you're dreaming, it can't be done. Um, but, and, and there's a lot of reasons to think why they might be right. Last year, how much of our electricity did we get from nuclear? Anyone know? 50%. Any, any other numbers? 55. Pardon? 55. 55. Any others? Pardon? 
I wish you were true. It's 57%. Last year, 50%, 7% of our electricity came from nuclear. Um, and not only, so that's one discouraging fact to many people. Another discouraging fact is um, Premier McGuinty is committed to a massive uh, nuclear rebuild plan. He wants to rebuild four nuclear reactors at the Bruce. He wants to um, rebuild um, four nuclear reactors at Darlington. He wants to build two brand new nuclear reactors at Darlington. He says it will cost like a mere $30 billion. But we, we know from past experience it's more likely to cost $80 billion. So here's the Premier of Ontario committed to this massive reinvestment in nuclear, which if it occurs will lock us into nuclear for more than 60 years. Um, so that's discouraging. Um, also, who are, what are the two biggest power companies in Ontario? Ontario Power Generation and Bruce Power. Combined, they produce more than 80% of our electricity. And both of them are, are, are rapidly pro-nuclear. I mean, they're in that business. And, um, you know, uh, nuclear power has relatively low greenhouse gas emissions. And many environmentalists, including me, say that, you know, climate change is one of the most um, serious threats to the mankind. But nevertheless, I'm supremely confident that we can, um, we can phase out um, nuclear in the next 18 years and, and move to a 100% renewable grid. And I'm confident, and uh, we've never been in a stronger position. And I started in this business in 1979. It was, after, it was after the Three Mile Island nuclear accident in 1979 that I decided to join the environmental movement to fight nuclear power. And you know, that was over 30 years ago. And back then, I mean, people knew that there was huge risks with nuclear, or huge safety risks, but they were willing to accept it because they believed that nuclear power was cheap and they believed that the only alternative was dirty coal. So back then, you know, it was the conventional wisdom that, you know, nuclear was the way to go. We should have massive reinvestments in, in nuclear. But you know what? The good news is now virtually no one believes that nuclear is cheap. I mean, the nuclear track record in terms of cost around the world in Ontario was absolutely outrageous. Every single nuclear project in Ontario's history has gone massively over budget, on average by a factor of 2.5 times. So it's not cheap. And um, over the last three years, Angela and I, the Clean Air Alliance, and, and you, our helpers, our, our supporters, have got this message out right across Ontario um, that nuclear is not cheap, that there's been these huge cost overruns. And you know what? Everyone believes it now. Virtually everyone you've talked to believes it. You talk to the Queen's Park media, they all think nuclear is hugely expensive. Angela and I met an Ontario cabinet minister last week. And he told us, he said, you know, Jack and Angela, um, all my cabinet colleagues have heard you. They all know nuclear is, is not cheap, it's very expensive. So people don't believe nuclear is cheap anymore, which, which they did 30 years ago when I started in this business. And the other really good news is now that it's absolutely clear that there are lots of lower cost, safer, and cleaner options. And that's what we're promoting. We're promoting three much lower cost, much cleaner, and safer options to, to phase out the nukes in the next 18 years. And they are energy efficiency, water power imports from Quebec, and combined heat and power. Now let's just talk about energy efficiency first. And, and we are making good progress. You know, when I started out 30 years ago, the prediction was that demand for electricity would grow relentlessly forever. And so it was really hard to imagine, you know, how we could ever um, move to a renewable grid. 
But since 2005, the electricity consumption in Ontario has actually fallen by 10%. Fallen by 10%. Uh, nevertheless, our electricity consumption per person is still 35% higher than that of New York State. So there's still a lot we can do to become much more energy efficient and reduce our bills. So energy efficiency is, is, is the key thing. It's the best solution. And in terms of renewables, the lowest cost renewable option for Ontario by far is water power imports from Quebec. You know, the people in the United States are much smarter than we are. A, a, a couple of years ago, Vermont signed a 26-year deal with Hydro-Quebec um, to import water power for 26 years at a price of 5.8 cents a kilowatt hour. That's less than one-third the cost of new nuclear. That's a really good bargain. And I just want to make clear that we are not advocating new dams in Quebec. There's all kinds of problems with that. But at the moment, Hydro-Quebec is exporting 11% of its power. Most of it to the United States. We want to get that, a lot of that power coming to Ontario instead. Focus on what's best for Ontario, what's best for Canada. But also there's a lot more that Quebec can do to increase its power exports without building dams. You know, our electricity consumption, I told you, was 35% higher than New York State. So we're very wasteful in our use of electricity. But Quebec is much, much more wasteful than we are. Quebec's electricity consumption per person is double that of Ontario's. Double that of Ontario's. It's just absurd. And so if Quebec was, was smart, they would invest in energy efficiency, lower their domestic customers' bills, free up their existing heritage hydroelectric capacity, and export that power to Ontario and the United States to make a huge profit and give us a clean source of power. So that's what we're advocating. So our last clip of the this show is from Michael Schellenberger, who this is his TED Talk that he recently did in Banff, Alberta, and specifically addresses his overall view that a fear of nuclear power uh, is harming the environment. And it's interesting that his use of the term environment in the context of this show, uh, because again, it's blurring that line between the concerns around nuclear waste, the concerns around uh, nuclear meltdowns, and the larger issue and challenge around climate change. And so I felt like in this clip, Michael did a very good job of articulating uh, the context that we're within, and that the, the the his sort of mantra that we could be taking one step forward and two steps back and that if we are to seriously address climate change as an issue, we need to really be thinking about what we're doing with the existing infrastructure we have, with the future infrastructure that we're building, and how we align the interests of environmentalists and climate activists in order to meet some of those object objectives because uh, as is demonstrated by Michael in this clip, uh, you can have some very fundamental issues and challenges uh, in adhering to environmental concerns that come at the uh, offset of meeting some of your climate targets. So here's that clip from Michael Schellenberger. Have you heard the news? We're in a clean energy revolution. Where I live in Berkeley, California, it seems like every day I see a new roof with new solar panels going up, electric car in the driveway. Germany sometimes gets half its power from solar, and India is now committed to building 10 times more solar than we have in California by the year 2022. I mean, even nuclear seems to be making a comeback. Uh, Bill Gates is 
in China working with engineers. There's 40 different companies that are working together to try to race to build the first reactor that runs on waste, that can't melt down, and is cheaper than coal. And so you might start to ask, is this whole global warming problem going to be a lot easier to solve than anybody imagined? That was the question we wanted to know, and so my colleagues and I decided to take a deep dive into the data. We were a little skeptical of some parts of the clean energy revolution story, but what we found really surprised us. So the first thing is that clean energy has been increasing. This is electricity from clean energy sources over the last 20 years. But when you look at the percentage of global electricity from clean energy sources, it's actually been in decline from 36% to 31%. And if you care about climate change, you've got to go in the opposite direction to 100% of our electricity from clean energy sources as quickly as possible. Now, you might wonder, come on, how much could five percentage points of global electricity be? Well, it turns out to be quite a bit. It's the equivalent of 60 nuclear plants the size of Diablo Canyon, California's last nuclear plant, or 900 solar farms the size of Topaz, which is one of the biggest solar farms in the world and, and certainly our biggest in California. Well, a big part of this is just simply that fossil fuels are increasing faster than clean energy. And that's understandable. There's just a lot of poor countries that are still using wood and dung and charcoal as their main source of energy, and they need modern fuels. But there's something else going on, which is that one of those clean energy sources in particular has actually been on the decline in absolute terms, not just relatively, and that's nuclear. You can see its generation has declined 7% over the last 10 years. Now, solar and wind have been making huge strides, and so you hear a lot of talk about how it doesn't really matter because solar and wind is going to make up the difference. But the data says something different. When you combine all the electricity from solar and wind, you see it actually barely makes up half of the decline from nuclear. Well, let's take a closer look in the United States. Over the last couple of years, really 2013, 2014, we prematurely retired four nuclear power plants. They were almost entirely replaced with fossil fuels. And so the consequence was that we wiped out almost as much clean energy electricity that we get from solar. And it's not unique to us. I mean, people think of California as a clean energy and climate leader, but when we looked at the data, what we found is that, in fact, California reduced emissions more slowly than the national average between 2000 and 2015. What about Germany? They're doing a lot of clean energy. But when you look at the data, German emissions have actually been going up since 2009, and there's really not anybody who's going to tell you that they're going to meet their climate commitments in 2020. The reason isn't hard to understand. Solar and wind provide power about 10 to 20 percent of the time, which means that when the sun's not shining, the wind's not blowing, you still need power for your hospitals, your homes, your cities, your factories. And while batteries have made some really cool improvements lately, the truth is that they're just never going to be as efficient as the electrical grid. Every time you put electricity into a battery and you take it out, you lose about 20 to 40 percent of the power. That's why when, in California, we try to deal with all of the solar we've brought online, we now get about 10 percent of our electricity from solar. When the sun goes down and people come home from work and turn on their air conditioners and their TV sets and every other appliance in the house, we need a lot of natural gas backup. So what we've been doing is stuffing a lot of natural gas into the side of a mountain. And that worked pretty well for a while, but then late last year it sprung a leak. 
This is Aliso Canyon, and so much methane gas was released, it was the equivalent of putting a half a million cars on the road. It basically blew through all of our climate commitments for the year. Well, what about India? Sometimes you have to go places to really get the right data. So we traveled to India a few months ago. We met with all the top officials, solar, nuclear, the rest. And what they told us is they said, we're actually having more serious problems than both Germany and California. We don't have backup. We don't have all the natural gas. And that's just the start of it. We say we want to get to 100 gigawatts by 2022, but last year we did just five, and the year before that we did five. So let's just take a closer look at nuclear. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has looked at the carbon content of all these different fuels, and nuclear comes out really low. It's actually lower even than solar. And nuclear obviously provides a lot of power. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. During a year, a single plant can provide power 92% of the time. And what's interesting is that when you look at countries that have deployed different kinds of clean energies, there's only a few that have done so at a pace consistent with dealing with the climate crisis. So nuclear seems like a pretty good option, but there's this big problem with it, which all of you, I'm sure, are aware of, which is that people really don't like it. Uh, there was a study, a survey done of people around the world, not just in the United States or Europe, uh, about a year and a half ago. And what they found is that nuclear is actually one of the least popular forms of energy. Even oil is more popular than nuclear. And uh, while nuclear kind of edges out coal, the thing is people don't really fear coal in the same way that they feared nuclear, which really operates on our unconscious. So what is it that we fear? I mean, there's really three things. There's the safety of the plants themselves, the fears that they're going to melt down and cause damage. There's the waste from them. And then there's the association with weapons. And I think, understandably, engineers look at those concerns and they want to look for technological fixes. I mean, that's why Bill Gates is in China developing advanced reactors. That's why 40 different entrepreneurs are working on this problem. And, and I myself have been very excited about it. We did a report, How to Make Nuclear Cheap. In particular, the thorium reactor shows a lot of promise. And so when the climate scientist James Hansen asked if I wanted to go to China with him and look at the Chinese advanced nuclear program, I jumped at the chance. We were there with MIT and UC Berkeley engineers. And you know, I had in my mind that the Chinese would be able to do with nuclear what they did with so many other things, just start to crank out small nuclear reactors on assembly lines, ship them up like iPhones or MacBooks and send them around the world. I would get one home in Berkeley. Um, but what I found was somewhat different. The, the presentations were all very exciting and very promising. They have multiple reactors that they're working on. The time came for the thorium reactor, and a bunch of us were excited. They went through the whole presentation, they got to the timeline, and they said, we're going to have a thorium molten salt reactor ready for sale to the world by 2040. And I was like, what? <laughs> Looked at my colleagues, I was like, excuse me, can you guys speed that up a little bit? Because we're in a little bit of a climate crisis right now, and your cities are really polluted, by the way. And they kind of responded back. They were like, I'm not sure what you've heard about our thorium program, but we don't have a third of our budget, and your Department of Energy hasn't been particularly forthcoming with all that data you guys have on testing reactors. And I said, well, I've got an idea. You know how you got 10 years where you're demonstrating that reactor? Let's just skip that part and let's just go right to commercializing it. That'll save money and time. And the engineer just looked at me and he said, let me ask you a question. 
Would you buy a car that had never been demonstrated before? So what about the other reactors? There's a reactor that's coming online now. They're starting to sell it. It's a high-temperature gas reactor. It can't melt down. Uh, but it's really big and bulky. That's part of the safety, and nobody thinks it's going to ever get cheaper than the reactors that we have. The ones that use waste as fuel are really cool ideas, but the truth is we don't actually know how to do that yet. There's some risk that you actually will make more waste, and most people think that if you're including that waste part of the process, it's just going to make the whole machine a lot more expensive. It's just adding another complicated step. And the truth is that there's real questions about how much of that we're going to do. I mean, we went to India and asked about the nuclear program. The government said before Paris, climate talks, that they were going to do something like 30 new nuclear plants. But when we got there and we interviewed people and we even looked at the internal documents, they're now saying they're going to do about five. And in most of the world, especially the rich world, they're not talking about building new reactors. We're actually talking about taking reactors down before their lifetimes are over. Germany's actually pressuring its neighbors to do that. I mentioned the United States. We could lose half of our reactors over the next 15 years, which would wipe out 40% of the emissions reductions we're supposed to get under the Clean Power Plan. And of course, in Japan, they took all their nuclear plants offline, replaced them with coal, natural gas, oil burning, and they're only expected to bring online about a third to two-thirds. So when we kind of went through the numbers and just added that up, how much nuclear do we see China and India bringing online over the next... 15 years, how much do we see at risk of being taken offline? This was the most startling finding. What we found is that the world is actually at risk of losing four times more clean energy than we lost over the last 10 years. In other words, we're not in a clean energy revolution. We're in a clean energy crisis. So it's understandable that engineers would look for a technical fix to the fears that people have of nuclear. But when you consider that these are big challenges to do, that they're going to take a long time to solve, there's this other issue, which is that are those technical fixes really going to solve people's fears? Let's take safety. You know, despite what people think, it's hard to figure out how to make nuclear power much safer. I mean, every medical journal that looks at it, this is the most recent study from the British journal Lancet, one of the most respected journals in the world, nuclear is the safest way to make reliable power. Everybody's scared of the accident. So you go look at the accident data, Fukushima, Chernobyl, World Health Organization finds the same thing. The vast majority of harm is caused by people panicking, and they're panicking because they're afraid. In other words, the harm that's caused isn't actually caused by the machines or the radiation. It's caused by our fears. And what about, what about the waste? Everyone worries about the waste. Well, the interesting thing about the waste is how little of it there is. This is just from one plant. If you take all the nuclear waste we've ever made in the United States, put it on a football field, stacked it up, it would only reach 20 feet high. And people say it is poisoning people or doing something. It's not. It's just sitting there. It's just being monitored. There's not very much of it. By contrast, the waste that we don't control from energy production we call it pollution, and it kills 7 million people a year, and it's threatening very serious levels of global warming. And the truth is that even if we get good at using that waste as fuel, there's always going to be some fuel left over, and that means there's always going to be those people that think it's a big problem for reasons that maybe don't have as much to do with the actual waste as we think. Well, what about the weapons? 
Maybe the most surprising thing is that we can't find any examples of countries that have nuclear power and then, oh, decide to go get a weapon. In fact, it works the opposite. What we find is that the only way we know how to get rid of large numbers of nuclear weapons is by using the plutonium in the warheads as fuel in our nuclear power plants. And so if you are wanting to get the world rid of nuclear weapons, then we're going to need a lot more nuclear power. As, as I was leaving China, the engineer that brought Bill Gates there kind of pulled me aside and he said, you know, Michael, I appreciate your interest in all the different nuclear supply technologies, but there's this more basic issue, which is that there's just not enough global demand. I mean, we can crank out these machines on assembly lines. We do know how to make things cheap, but there's just not enough people that want them. And so let's do solar and wind and efficiency and conservation. Let's accelerate the advanced nuclear programs. I think we should triple the amount of money we're spending on it. But I just think the most important thing, if we're going to overcome the climate crisis, is to keep in mind that the cause of the clean energy crisis isn't from within our machines. It's from within ourselves. Thank you very much. So that brings us to a close uh, for this month's episode of Energy Voices. We tried something a little bit different this month to really try to take some uh, issues that have been discussed at length, both from a pipeline perspective and from a nuclear perspective, and, and articulate that there's a lot more nuance to these conversations and that there is a fundamental tension on some of these conversations between what is purely right for the climate and is purely aligned with our ability to meet our Paris Agreement targets and to meet a two-degree global target. And some of the very real concerns from the environmental movement, um, from landowners, from and, and from this sort of socio-cultural perspective. And so I hope this has offered our listeners a little bit of a different viewpoint on these sorts of topics and these sorts of conversations, as I think it's important for people to understand that just because something has inherent benefits, it can also have very significant detractors. And it's important for us to really look at this as a larger energy system and to have a discussion around what is of most value to us is the number one full stop target to meet a climate a two degree climate target if so that shapes how we approach these sorts of conversations or is there a lot more nuance and focus on some of the very real environmental concerns that may operate in opposition to meeting that uh, two degree global target uh, and specifically addressing global climate initiatives so uh, we're always happy to hear people's feedback and comments and you can uh, find us uh, at studentenergy.org you can talk about the show using hashtag energy voices and you can also find all previous episodes of the show uh, by visiting soundcloud.com slash energy voices or subscribing on your favorite podcast service. Uh, My name is Sean Collins and I've been the host of this month's show and we look forward to seeing you next month. Cheers.